0: Hello, everyone. Hi, this is Nishant Malhotra from The Middle Road. Today, I have a very exciting guest. Today, I'll be speaking with uh, Peter Fusaro. And predominantly, the theme for today's podcast is green energy and environmental finance. So there are going to be a lot of podcasts on, around sustainable finance now. I want to first thank Peter Fusaro, who is a global leader on green energy and environmental finance, for speaking with me today. So, be uh, here and I warmly welcome you. It's a pleasure to be here and share my knowledge. Thank you. Just give a brief description. Peter Fusaro is a veteran figure in clean energy and environment, environmental finance with nearly 50 years of experience spanning the private and public sectors. He is currently a managing director at Weald & Company, a focus on financing solutions for decarbonization, and founded the 23-year-running Wall Street Green Summit on Sustainable Finance. Now, this is a huge deal, and I'll be also asking a question on this uh, particular subject. He's passionate about accelerating the global transition to transability. He's also authored 17 books on energy, including the bestseller, What Went Wrong at Enron. So I, I remember there's a very good documentary, uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room on Enron, uh, if you remember, Peter.
1: Yes, there are 22 books on Enron. He also wrote a bestseller. Uh,
0: served as an uh, advisor or entrepreneur across n- numerous clean tech startups and served as an external advisory board member of the ERB Institute for Global Sustainable Enterprise School of Business, University of Michigan. Just to give also, I'm also an alum of University of Michigan. I did my master's in public administration from Jared Ford School of Public Policy. Thanks, a very warm welcome and I really appreciate taking time and speaking with me. I'll start of course is that the social finance landscape is changing tremendously this is including in climate action now innovative bond finance usually finance also nature-based solutions biodiversity gender equity and some of the themes like i've covered enormously on the middle road there are of course other themes in this uh, sustainable sector now from impact bonds wherein the middle road i've designed a course on this particular subject to catastrophic bonds speak to how this Social financing innovation would change the way we raise private capital for the global development sector.
1: Yes, you also should add that we're starting to see the reinsurance industry become more active, as well as the the green bond initiatives. Just to give you an overlay, venture capital in the last year and a half has come down, unfortunately. It may resurge, but we have an expression in New York, they're sitting on dry powder. They're not deploying as much capital, about half as much as they used to. However, who's stepping into the financial void today are sovereign wealth funds, strategic investors that are very interested in the energy transition, and some of the uh, highly qualified family offices who've always been first movers on sustainability. But I, I foresee this year is actually better than last year. Because there's just an impetus now for climate solutions, and that needs more fuel, aka money, to get the job done.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, when you talked about catastrophic bond, that's the reinsurance industry or, you know, the industry which you correctly talked about. Now, you've also worked on uh, microgrid projects. Now, one of them is based in India, Grameen Surya Bijli Foundation in Delhi, where you work. How do you see microgrid projects changing the development sector, both in India and other countries? You could talk about both from an advanced country's perspective or from an emerging market space.
1: Actually, I see microgrids, as you just mentioned, in both sectors. For developing countries, it makes a lot of sense to leapfrog technology for those people who do not have access to the electric power grid. And that's over a billion people globally, it's not a small number. So they can benefit from microgrids, specifically marrying solar batteries, LED lamps, etc. For the more developed world, we need more resilience due to climate change storms and other catastrophic events. So the game really is twofold. Get the cost down for microgrids. And Schneider Electric has been one of the leaders in microgrids, by the way, and they're a big uh, French uh, conglomerate. But we need more impetus here because in my opinion and the reason I did work in India uh, with the NGO was we wanted to help people in the community that were not connected to the grid. So everybody looks at central power stations, which are large scale, big megawatt facilities. We're talking very small scale, which is easily sited. It doesn't have to even be near transmission lines, can be nearby. And we're seeing this done in the U.S., for example, for senior citizen homes, for police stations, fire stations, because as we're starting to see the severity of storms throughout the world increasing and fires, flooding, uh, rainfall, uh, tremendous events that have all been predicted, but no one really wanted to listen. Now we need to make the grid more resilient, but we also have to think about
0: distributed energy as a much more viable solution. You're right, like you have you know one of the reasons why I talked about catastrophic bond was also the World Bank came out with the bond in the Chile uh, so if you know of course grid could be one of the answers, and now people are also taking a lot of insurance against so this sort of particular innovation has come, which was already there within the private street but it's come within the social impact space now in terms of uh, sustainable development uh, Peter worked very extensively in the uh, uh, clean tech uh, venture capital funds. And you also have worked in hedge funds. So these are sort of uh, on, you know, portfolio construction. So these are alternative investments uh, wherein you have, you know, returns which are non normal. So when you look at startups, which are very difficult to value, you know, specifically in the early stage, which you do not have a, a free cash flow model to actually, you know, it's it's totally on uh, assumptions which you will take. So what are the key attributes which you look uh, for st- startups, especially when you're looking at the clean tech sector? And then I'll ask about more other sectors. Let's start with. I, I have I vetted have over 2000 companies in my career in the clean
1: tech sector. I was an entrepreneur in residence at Columbia Tech Ventures, which is part of Columbia University. And so I've been very involved with early stage startups who, frankly, lack capital but have good ideas. What's really the missing link and what I focus on now is the management team. Can the people that are doing the work execute and commercialize a strategy. It is not easy to work in a startup. I've actually been involved in four startups so I kind of know what I'm talking about. And so you really need to think long term. the better news is we're starting to see more government funding for startups as grants and forgivable loans. but really the, the community is what we're talking about. here in New York we have 400 startups within the incubators. And in other countries, similarly, there's clusters of startups, which is good because there's a need to share knowledge and information. For example, if you have somebody who's very good in business development in one startup, they may be helpful to someone in the other startup and the incubators. But this is difficult because most of them are going to fail. It's just unfortunate. It's a fact of life. Most startups are not going to make it. And what I've also seen, because I've been a judge in the clean tech open for the Northeast, that's in Boston and New York specifically, even great ideas coming out of MIT sometimes are lacking things like, does the market need this solution? Who are the competitors? I always hear there are no competitors. There are always competitors. So it's very important to do competitive analysis. So so it's kind of like, Financial models are nice. They're, they're just predictions. Management's the most important to me. Can you have the right people? And I'm working with not a startup, a company that's built, burned $125 million, but they've changed their entire management team in the last two years. So even as they grow, they still need the best people. And like I said, do the market analysis, do the competitive analysis, and make sure there's something there I'm a graduate of Carnegie Mellon. I went back to Carnegie Mellon to speak to the students a few years ago on startups. And they're saying, well, start start a company in your dorm room. I'm not so sure everybody can be Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. I think, frankly, you need some skill set of knowledge to actually have a more viable startup. And a better idea I'm starting to see is a lot of the large strategic energy companies and original equipment manufacturers have what I call technology scouts. They are looking for the next best technology. They're not going to invent it themselves. They're going to invest in that technology company and probably down the road acquire that technology company because startups really are the lifeblood of innovation and entrepreneurship. They're not big bureaucratic behemoths. They're pretty small, 10, 20 people. Some are a little larger, but really people with a good idea. And do execution. And what I coach people is get a large strategic investor involved. So, for example, I'm involved with a company with reversible, reversible hydrogen fuel cells. They won Shell Game Changers. Another company which I'm not, I'm helping out a little bit, called VoltPost to plug in for EVs from light posts. Got very big uh, investors involved from the energy sector. So, and, and in this case, Exelon. another utility. So you need to have some guidance from the large companies. They can be very helpful because they can give you a value proposition that's higher. They can give you the use case that's better. Do we need this technology? And as I said, they are scouring new technology companies all throughout the world. It's not like all siloed in New York. It's everywhere. So the, the point being, the startups need money obviously hired good people sometimes those people work for sweat equity they don't get paid anything which is i think unfair but that's a true a fact of life and we just see a tremendous movement from startup now to accelerators so there's a lot of talk about accelerators which are a little more advanced stage startups and then movement into commercialization scale i don't foresee everything being an initial public offering i see a lot of what we call trade sales large companies buying the startups and uh, just to put it on the table energy is 73% of greenhouse gases so the energy sector is front and center the most opportune time for decarbonization we're talking probably a 100 a $1 trillion dollar ticket in the next 30 years
0: to decarbonize the global economy and so when you look at like areas, which areas will be bullish at the present? Like you know, this is a very vast segmented clean water, sustainable agriculture. That is where I think some of the things are happening. Sustainable agriculture, which I keep, you know, hearing. Or energy efficiency, of course, has been going on for a r- long time. More into sustainable infrastructure and buildings. That you think, uh, how how would you rank some of them?
1: I'm, the, I'm very involved in hydrogen. So sort of pu- pushing past EVs, hydrogen for power production, hydrogen, fuel cell vehicles. I think energy storage is seminal for solar, wind, and all the intermittent uh, renewable resources. And I went to an advanced battery conference that the Department of Energy put on in New York last week. And there's a lot of interest now from large companies to get more uh, larger facilities for energy storage. I'm talking advanced battery technology, fuel cell technology, new kinds of batteries, not just lithium ion, but zinc air batteries, airflow batteries. This is material science play, and it's even a nanotechnology science play. So, uh, So those are the areas... That I'm focused on. The more mature markets obviously are solar and wind. Solar costs have come down, as we all know about 95% from 15 years ago. And that's made that readily deployable around the world. You can deploy solar energy everywhere. Wind costs have come down about 65%. What's happening in, in that sector? They're making they're building larger turbines. So they're re-footprinting existing turbines for larger facilities. And in the US, we now have the beginning of offshore wind which is much more advanced in Europe and even parts of Asia like Taiwan have offshore wind. So that's a, that's a technology player using kind of oil and gas platforms to put uh, technology on those platforms. Uh, so those are the ones I'm focused on. i am also looked pretty heavily in nature-based solutions, agroforestry, repurposing distressed land, using biotechnology to create better value for farmers and also pay those farmers, as well as replant uh, trees. So that's sort of a reforestation play, as well an agroforestry play. And lately, I've got involved in sustainable fishing. As we know, due to climate change, the catch of fish is declining, particularly in northern climates like Norway, Alaska, New Zealand. And so there's a now school of thought to perhaps cite fish farms in southern warmer waters and so I'm involved with a company doing that offshore Panama, offshore valley. So because protein is going to be very seminal going forward throughout the world as the population continues to increase. And I think fish are going to be a supplement to red meat in, in many jurisdictions. People, I don't eat red meat, for example. That's a, I, I choose not to eat red meat. Uh, but other people will start moving more. The, so the demand for protein is, is going to get bigger. And I think there'll be a greater opportunity. The problem I've seen on vertical farming, however, I've seen no one have a real successful model. And I have worked with a vertical farm in Brooklyn. It's difficult to scale, commercialize. And yes, you can make green leafy vegetables. You can make spicy leafy vegetables, but it's kind of a niche market. And we haven't seen a model in hundreds of millions of dollars have been deployed in the sector with plenty, with arrow farms, etc. So we have not found a solution for vertical farming, but sustainable agriculture front and center is very important. How we grow our food, can we provide food for more people? We I mentioned the need for protein, so that's also important. And then you mentioned water. So my holy trinity is energy, food, and water. They're the world's three largest businesses. Energy is a $6 trillion business. Agriculture is a $5 trillion business. Water is a $3 trillion business. So size does matter. All of these sectors are impacted by climate change. And we just have really good thinking going on that people say, how can I do this better? Do I need a technology fix? Do I need more money to scale? So I'm actually quite enthusiastic For this year, 2024, I know people last year were, were, were a little hesitant in the venture capital space, but that's starting to shift to sovereign wealth funds, which are now investing in startups for the first time. We're seeing a lot more activity because in the past, they've looked for what we call big tickets, 50 million, 500 million. They're starting to go downstream to smaller tickets to viable startups. Don't need a lot of money to get going. One million, two million, five million, 10 million. Where I sit, I work with more advanced companies. We raise 25 to 100 million dollars for these companies to scale and commercialize. But the good news is, there's lots of people in the sector. The bad news is academia is a little behind this sector. I've worked with Stanford and Oxford in the last three years. They've just set up sustainability colleges. And so we need more programming from academia as well as movement of of technology, which is mostly engineering or applied engineering solutions. So I, I think when you look at sustainability writ large, you have to look at everything. You have to look at architecture. You have to look at engineering. You have to look at finance. You have to look at behavior. You have to look at communication. I mean, AI is getting a lot of play in this sector, which is good, but it can't do everything. We still need human beings that are trained. So there's a lot of emphasis now I'm what we call in the U S workforce development to retrain workers to work in this new sector, which I'll just call sustainability. It really didn't have a name. So at Columbia, they call it the climate school and Stanford, and Oxford have different names. Everybody has a different name. It doesn't matter. Point is this is just starting to move. The better news is the last three years we've actually seen this sector starting to mature. For things like ESG investing, for things like carbon markets, there's a lot of opportunity that really wasn't there before.
0: Thank you. you. know that was a very in-depth analysis, and you know, hearing you, there are a couple of also questions that came in. First, I just wanted, maybe, you know, I'm not very familiar with the term. When you talk about vertical farming, are you speaking about uh, sustainable agriculture?
1: Yes, I'm talking about basically. Indoor agriculture inside buildings using aquaponics, using the fish poop as a nutrient, using LED lamps so the plants get lighting, and using advanced computer technology that's kind of it in a
0: nutshell. So it's really indoor agriculture. Yeah, you see it in a lot of movies, also in Hollywood movies, or you know, a lot of things which are also coming out from Europe, US and uh, Europe. I, I, we, I I've seen that happen, but of course it, it's not on a very grand scale. Like you really mentioned that it would take some, some sort of an idea or a, you know, out of the box thinking. I wanted to just follow up on a couple of things. When I talked about sure. clean energy, sustainable agriculture, I was also reading the Chris report. A lot of fantastic work is going on in the US now. I mean, in the sense from there, I got an idea. You know, you talked about reforestation. You talked about sustainable ag- buildings. That's where I, started getting an idea how they're trying to improve the efficiency of infrastructure or in buildings also. And, you know, so many things which you talked about. So, you th- would you say that, you know, action? I think Europe is doing a lot of, lot of good work. The uh, US is right on the top. Of course, you know, China is doing, India is also doing, Singapore also. And the you know, if you look at the Asian countries, even Japan, you know, one of the best, one of the first countries in the world actually to come out with the AG metrics, I think, for the pension funds. A lot of work. How would you, are, are, are you really satisfied with a lot of things which are happening in the US? No.
1: Yes. Don't believe the headlines. Trump's going to do this and climate's denying. Look, this is how it works. Most of the jobs in clean energy are in Republican, what we call red states already. They're not going to stop 300,000 solar jobs. I'm just giving an example of one sector. We're just starting to build a wind Offshore wind force in the northeast. So so I'm not, you know, if you want to listen to the headlines, oh, this pension fund from Florida, this pension fund from Texas can't invest in ESG. So what? They are losing what I used to call environmental alpha. They're not going to get the benefit of many of these companies that are going to be extremely profitable in this sector. So directionally, the U.S under the Biden administration with the climate bill, but they also had the infrastructure bill and the CHIP sacks. So there's a lot of government funding going out the door right now to about 2030. i worked as a policymaker many decades ago at the Department of Energy, so I've worked in the private sector, and I'm more focused on private sector monies. Now, where's that money coming from? Strategic investors, energy companies, Original equipment manufacturers, people that actually understand their space and need to innovate. Sovereign wealth funds, big ones, Norway, Abu Dhabi, Singapore. These are huge funds, which I've talked to, and they are very active. Family offices, very wealthy families want to give back. They have made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, very active in this, what I'll call the impact investing space. So I, I You know, you can hear things that things have to have a purpose, investing with a purpose. But my game is impact investing. This has a benefit to humankind. And, you know, the game very simply is human health and welfare. So I'll just take you back on my journey real quick. I've worked on air quality issues my entire career, taking the lead out of gasoline with the Environmental Protection Agency in the 1970s working on the Prius in the 1990s with Toyota. Always about air quality. Air quality is still a killer. Over 9 million people last year died from air pollution. It's a problem. It's a problem. It can be fixed. When I was told that we couldn't take the lead out of gasoline, we have gasoline shortages, I said, no, we're going to go do this. And the private sector innovated because engineers solved the problems and there were no gasoline shortages. So I'm getting at, if you can frame public policy with a regulatory outcome that is beneficial, let the private sector innovate. In other words, don't pick technology winners. You'll be very surprised how innovation and entrepreneurship, and even in large corporations, they call it intrapreneurship. Uh, You'll see them innovate do things differently because it can't be the same way. We are in the beginning of a transition to sustainability, just the beginning. As I mentioned before, the the $100 trillion that came out of my conference last year and now it's all over the internet, nobody's denying it's going to be a very large number to decarbonize, to get sustainable, to start moving things. I'm actually starting to talk about the energy transformation rather than transition. This is an industry that's going to be around. Energy is the world's largest business. People need transportation, mobility. People need heating and cooling. People need lighting. So it's sort of there. It's, it's very ever-present. And it's how the fossil fuel industry adapts to this change is really what's going on right now. So, for example, there's a lot of impetus now to capture methane. Methane emissions leaks are 22 times the carbon intensity of CO2, carbon dioxide. It's a big problem globally. So what they do is flare gas, pipelines leak. That's going to be solved. The Biden administration is already working on that. There's a company called Methane, which is looking at carbon credits for this. So people can look at some innovation in how to solve a problem. Not looking at it the same way we used to look at it. And don't forget, we're talking about a very massive business. Every country has an energy industry company, an electric and or gas utility, or several. The U.S. has almost 45 utilities, a little different than most countries. So there's a lot of innovation occurring. And what they're starting to talk about the last five years is the utility of the future. What is that going to look like? Is that going to be a utility of microgrids, like we have some being built in Brooklyn? Is that going to be a utility that has batteries and energy storage and solar on rooftops or solar on ground? This is a very different world we're we're entering. We are going to start looking at, at measurement of carbon intensity in many different manifestations. And the thing to really watch is scope three emissions, all the way down the value chain because we're now starting to see companies like Apple Computing Computer asking their suppliers in Taiwan to measure their carbon footprint. So the first step in this journey for many corporations is to measure the carbon footprint. That gives you a number, but that doesn't give you a solution. You have to do the other side, which is how do you reduce that carbon footprint? And that's where the innovation is, is catching on. But many software companies in the last two and a half years have been funded over hundred million dollars, hundred million euro, just on the carbon accounting. That's an important part of this because you have to measure, verify, and then bring in the solutions providers. So that's why we're just starting on this. And my own opinion is by 2030, no large corporation will be carbon neutral without buying carbon credits. And that market has been sized by Wood McKenzie and Edinburgh, Scotland at $22 trillion, which would make it the largest commodity market ever created.
0: Well, that's fascinating, I mean, to hear. You you know, of course, there's a carbon tax in Europe. That's, That's a great way of, you know, actually even negative externalities because of the carbon. So, yeah, a lot of work. And, like, you you gave a very good reference that about 100 uh, million euros are, is the sort of amount spent by you on uh, carbon accounting. Am I correct here? Yeah. That's that's
1: uh, It was, it's, I'm having a senior moment here. Patch. Check out Patch Software and Silvera, both those companies. One's in the UK, one's in France. Okay. In the US, two got funded. One's called uh, Watershed. And the other is called Persephone. So that's that's four that I know of, and I've never seen so much money poured into. I'll call them you know later stage startup carbon accounting companies, and they have all the bells and whistles. They do measurement all the way to the desktop. They're using you know machine learning, AI, all all the all the all the tricks of the trade. But but it's necessity. Those clients have the need. Most corporations can't measure their carbon footprint. So there's two markets here. One are large corporations. The other are private equity funds, which have portfolio companies, which also need to decarbonize. And here in New York, for example, there are 4,000 private equity funds. There are thousands of these companies.
0: You correctly mentioned, you know, you want to drive in private Capital, And then you have to have regulation. So you need a PPP, which is the 17th system development goal and public private partnership. That's how the, that's how I consider that, you know, that's how the government would enable or facilitate the creation of uh, innovation within a lot of these areas, which has been like you described as a market failure, because they've not been able to sort of find a solution.
1: There's, there's no one solution. That's the first problem. Second problem is every, every part of the world is a different fuel mix. It's not uniform. It's not simple. That's why there won't be one global carbon market. Same problem. Emissions are different in different areas of the world. Secondly, the coverage isn't there. So the, what you're describing is the compliance market, which we have in the EU, which we have in California, which we have in Quebec, other parts of the world, but that doesn't cover the whole market. So we, you know, we need a a larger plan, which we, now starting to see gestate in what's called the voluntary carbon market. It's small, it's growing, but that will start becoming a larger market because companies, particularly if I'm a corporation, I can't have reputational risk buying bad carbon credits. They have to be very well ratified, verified, and validated. I'll give you an example, and most people don't know this. Amazon worked with Vera, which is the Voluntary Carbon Registry, for a new standard, which came out in December, called Abacus. Abacus is the highest standard of carbon credit for nature-based solutions. So even corporations want that rigor for buying credits because they can't have a bad reputation, uh, become a bad actor. So you're going to see a movement more towards standardization at higher standards for the voluntary market. And that's going to be a very big
0: market. Mm, that's true actually before I come to the next question uh, which is on tax taximony, I wanted to also follow up on other things so you talked about a lot of innovation which is happening within batteries right now I think one of the most innovative companies in EV sector is Tesla I mean it defined the whole sector then there is another company which is in China which is coming up is BYD and BYD is actually known for, to have more efficient batteries am I correct here uh, do you think that could have been an anchor point for some of the innovation that people are looking is to like to uh, have better batteries because it's going to make uh, eV market much more sustainable, more cheaper, maybe more affordable? Exactly. And if you look at EV sales last year, they were eighteen percent globally. So we're
1: now starting to see the hockey stick in e v, and we need better batteries. One of the companies I work with is they use a nano coating to reduce the heat of lithium-ion batteries. Everybody knows a lithium ion battery is hot. You feel your cell phone, you feel your laptop, it is hot. And so that's a problem. So we need better material science and, and better bat- battery manufacturers. I don't care you know, where the batteries come from, if they're better. Tesla was the first mover, you have to understand it, but they are a first mover. The world is going beyond Tesla. It's, there's going to be many different opportunities in a battery space, but also in the in the mobility, transportation space. Like I said, I'm very involved with fuel cell. But fuel cell vehicles are a very small part of the global markets. It's basically internal combustion engines moving to EVs, which are growing rapidly, very rapidly, and then a very small segment for hydrogen. Now, why I like hydrogen so much, because I've driven hydrogen fuel cell cars, And I've looked at the tailpipe, and it makes water vapor. So hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, and the emission is water vapor. But I don't know how many years we are away. I've been involved with something called the Hydrogen Council, which is now about 200 corporates in Brussels. So we're starting to see very large companies get very involved in hydrogen, doing things like switching out methane, CH4,
0: and using hydrogen in equipment. So they're testing it. Green hydrogen. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. About, of, I mean, a couple of this lot of use of that in electrical trains and high speed trains. It's, it's been used in Europe. It's being used also in China. I think India took a couple of trains. Also, is using green green hydrogen for you know. So I think that's one of the areas where there's going to be a lot of. Uh, that's very true. And this could be within the parlance of uh, mobility within the railway sector also.
1: Yeah, they've also used it in shipping. Norway and Japan have had hydrogen ships, but this is small. You know, the point is we need you know, a global fleet of fleet of tankers is not running on hydrogen. So, so we. The point is, it's here. Can we accelerate that? So, my mission, and I've been in this sector since Earth Day, nineteen seventy. My mission is to accelerate and commercialize solutions. And you know, people used to laugh at me when I used to tell them I wanted to make the world a better place but I've been to 50 countries. I've been all over the world. We can lift all the boats. Why should people suffer from health risks using energy? It should be cleaner. And it can be, because all of a sudden, we call it bending the cost curve. All of a sudden, something that was very expensive becomes very affordable. And we've done that already with solar, and we've done that with wind. We're going to do that
0: across the board. You're going to see this with batteries as well. I think of Germany and France are doing a lot within the green energy space, uh, in, in the green hydrogen. Uh, that's what I, I have read about. Maybe I'm Running not... trains. They're running trains. Yeah, trains, right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, next question is, uh, you know, thanks a lot. I mean, that was a very detailed discussion on on particular topic. And I think we had a very deep dive on this. That was an excellent dis- discussion. My next question, of course, is on taximonies. Uh, you know, Ch- Singapore recently launched taximony for sustainable finance. Now, how do you think that we change the sustainable finance globally. A lot of people are doing taxonomies are very important. Who has done a lot of work within this space as well for different things. And uh, EU of course, has been taking a lead over much in green space. Now, what would your thoughts be on that?
1: I don't quite, you talk about taxonomies for, for sustainable finance. We don't have that yet. That's the problem. We have no standardization. That's, this is what's lacking in the ESG sector. We have a lot of different companies reporting on ESG, but what are they actually measuring? So this is a, I, I spoke at the CFA Society almost four years ago now about working together to create common standards. Now I know that sounds very simple, but companies are making a lot of money selling their data. So they have not done this. So I, it's it's a real problem because what are you measuring? What are you reporting? What are, What are the accounting standards? We don't have uniformity, and I don't know when we're going to have it. But we need that. It would be very helpful for the sustainable finance sector to benchmark that.
0: But like I said, that hasn't happened yet. Singapore has launched. I think some work is going on in Asian sector also for long, I don't think so. They have launched it, but there's some sort of framework being put in for in that space. So, yeah, that's true that we need a taxonomy and people actually, and we are actually moving towards that. I think that's going to standardize a lot of things in ESG that will make it much more simple, that make it much more easier to for accounting purposes. Now, when you look at clean tech and you spoke a lot about clean tech, that's a sector which is both within the business and development sectors. See, clean tech, packed for the less or the underprivileged section of the society. Where do you think that could be?
1: Well, I, I think the analog I'll give you is cell phones. So when I was in India in 1996, people were buying cell phones. And I couldn't figure this out. And I was asking people, why are they buying cell phones when they're not connected yet? The point being, you can go from not using landlines to cell phones. I mentioned before, you can go to the microgrid and bypass the central power station, which is extremely expensive. I think there's, there are opportunities in what people are start, now starting to call the South, the emerging South, to use better technologies that may be developed in the North, but can be deployed where there's a mass of humanity and, and go faster. So we we can see the, the innovation, the initiatives, but as I said, it, my own attitude is the technology can come from anywhere. It is not siloed In the U.S. or China or Singapore or Japan, it's everywhere. People are looking at this question, how do I fix it? How do I make the world a better place through reducing carbon? How do I make energy more affordable for more people? How do I make water more affordable? How do I make education more affordable? One of the things I was working on in Kenya was to basically go from fixed landline cell towers and bring it to mobile. And these gentlemen are still working on that. They start bringing it into Kenya you can roll it all across Southern, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So the point is being there's, there's no obstacle to that. You know, capital is an obstacle. I guess you could call it that, but the, the innovation is there and the need is great. If you travel like I have traveled, I have traveled to developing countries as well as developed countries. Many Americans don't see that. They don't know. They're, not, they're unaware. If you're aware and more people are traveling globally, you have more opportunity to, in my opinion, to transport ideas and better information and more knowledge. But unfortunately, there's no clearinghouse for all of this. There just isn't. But there, there are, you know, some side pockets of 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 intellectual capital, like some platforms are starting to. They're not, I'm not saying they're a library, but they're starting to get more uniform.
0: Actually. I did ask about EVs, but it, you know there was there was a follow up question, and uh, I think I'll sort of anyway ask about that. You 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 yourself you you also mentioned that you worked with uh, Toyota Prius development team on power issues. That was uh, in the mid nineties. Uh, the electric vehicle circle vehicle segment has like drastically changed. Of course, Tesla we I talked about then about BYD, but then GM, Volkswagen, Toyota, Stellantis. They are all you know we have upstarts like Rivian, Lucid Motors. Polestar, Star, Zengpen Motors, I don't know how to pronounce Peng or Zengpen Motors, are also doing some fantastic work. Now, why I'm trying to ask this question is not about only innovation and batteries. Now, For example, battery swapping is something which I think the first idea came to Israel. There was a company known as Better Work or I forgot. Very the- bad
1: idea. Very bad yeah. idea.
0: But then maybe because the country was much
1: smaller. It- no, it's a dumb idea, battery swapping. The okay. better idea is building infrastructure for recharging. Okay. So yes. so what's going on there? I mentioned VoltPost. Volt post is a small company here in New York that you can plug into your EV into the lamppost. Another one's called Hevo Power. Hevo is wireless recharging of EVs. Okay. So we're starting to look at a need for better infrastructure
0: right. for EV charging. Yeah, but, but then there were certain roadblocks, at least in the US, and there was a report that people are not able to, that you need to put a... Infrastructure in space. So, think that maybe a uh, Prius something like, which is like a more of a hybrid, could also be a good idea at this point in time?
1: No, not anymore. I think the markets passed them by. I think uh, Toyota's starting to get on the EV bandwagon now, but it's really an infrastructure issue. We don't have enough recharging centers. That's what we need. Some of the ideas were to put the recharging centers next to the railroad stations so people could drive their cars there. We need more infrastructure. That's the biggest hurdle. And then you know and, and the point is, there's also what level? So I rented a Tesla, and I drove 100 miles from here to a hotel, and I put my battery, put my uh, recharger into the car, and took eight hours to recharge. And a friend of mine said, "Well, you know, Peter, it gets cold, that's going to discharge the battery." And it did. That was called Level One batteries uh, recharging. Very slow, v- too slow. So, we also need fast charging. So we're starting to look at level two, level three. it's you know, it's like here's the first generation. okay, we got started. Now we're like two generations above that. And so we have to have better technology, fast charging, basically, more easily deployable, not too expensive, et cetera. So it's this is the numbers I'm looking at for EVs are astronomical. And then the source I'm looking at is Bloomberg Energy Finance. You could go download from them. Uh, they put out an, a report usually in February, do all the different clean tech sectors. It's free. And the point is, we don't have, we don't have enough infrastructure for recharging. recharging yet. That's, so it's chicken and the egg. Maybe I want to go electric, but where do I
0: recharge? And you can actually do the search on your iPhone. And I think uh, we, of course, demand is not exponential. That's true. It's changing around globally. There's a company from WinFast uh, that's sort of made a headway. It's coming to the, it's already there in the US. You're absolutely correct. Sort of take an analogy, like when we had, you know, earlier mobile phones that took a lot of time. Just a five to 10 minutes charge could last you oh, for, you know, a couple of hours or more. So I think that's how the battery would also change. When you are yeah. uh, speaking of EV, yeah, it's going to go up and much better and much better over a period of time. Maybe a shorter period of time, you'll have much more focus on that because now there's a demand. Uh, there is a sort of a market for EV. I talked about this experience. You have eight years as an ex, you worked as an external advisory board member at the ERB Institute for Global Sustainable Finance at Ross School. It's a fascinating school, Ross. I did uh, two electives there. It's a very good school at University of Michigan and Arbor. How was your experience? You know, you you sort of have worn a lot of hats in your life, and this was more of an academic things so you have done. A lot you you spoke, you do you you you're doing work at Columbia. You do you went to Carnegie Mellon at Pittsburgh, a fantastic city. How was your experience and your takeaways from uh, your work at uh, University of Michigan and Arbor?
1: Well, the University of Michigan's program was unique at the time I'm not sure today but it was basically an MBA in the Ross School of Business and the school and finance degree and an MA in the School of Natural Resources it was a double degree very rigorous and we downsized the program to 30 people a year so it's a very small program maybe 500 graduates total in the last 25 years however the, re- the reason I was attracted, the students invited me. I gave a talk there, and they said, why can't you be on our advisory board? I was also on the advisory board of Bard College MBA and Sustainability. I professor at Columbia, I was a professor teaching renewable energy project finance of second-year grad students. So my thesis is very simple. We can't make transformative change without young people. And I committed myself to this almost 25 years ago. I've mentored over 300 young people specifically on their career development. I've opened doors for them. They get jobs. Tomorrow, I'm meeting eight young people every hour on the hour at the Cornell Club here in New York City. I just firmly believe that it's important to mentor young people in this sector, as I've mentioned, doesn't have a lot of academic rigor yet, and we'll call it sustainable finance for lack of a better term. My mom was a college professor. So my role model is a little different than most people. So I've worked in policy. I've worked in academia. I've worked in technology. And I've worked in finance. Yeah, I work, I wear a lot of hats. And they all are interrelated. So they're not simple. But what I I'll give you my joke now. So I tell the people, I told the people at the University of Michigan I had a call option on young people. And then they always laughed at me because that meant in the money. I'm very committed. To the next generation or generations, because it's very important. This is the world they're inheriting,
0: this is the world they can make great changes. And that's true. And one of the things also I want to follow up is like you talked about the dual degree. So they had a dual degree also with the public policy. I think it runs to three years where you get an MBA degree and an MPA or MPP degree. I'm not exactly sure how that works out, MPA or its MPP. um, I know because a couple, two, three people from my badge or badge senior were actually involved in, you know, dual degree. And if the right time is, of course, when you're pretty, you're much younger, it's much easier to bend your mind or, you know, to sort of change your views because it becomes much more difficult as you outgrow or as you grow with age i mean change is of course constant but uh, change might not be that significant as you age over a period of time and uh, that's good you you know have a lot of interest in uh, mentoring students now i come to the another very important question you have been you know at the forefront of wall street green summit on sustainable finance and it's one of the largest of its kind what prompted you to start this event you know at, during because when you started it wasn't like green was a major, major name at that point in time. You're much ahead of the curve, you'd say. I was 25 years ahead of the
1: curve easily. People on Wall Street thought I was different. Two people at one of the exchanges thought I had two heads because I was talking about renewable energy 25 years ago. And a woman came to me and said, I want to do a conference on megawatts." And I said, no, 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 nobody cares about megawatts. You know, this is Amory Lovins." Not, not using energy, energy efficiency. And I said, no, we're going to do a conference on megawatts, energy efficiency, carbon, and renewables. And then we got started and at different venues, McGraw-Hill Conference Center, Bloomberg, Reuters, New York Times Center. And I've, I've had 9,000 people come to the event over 20 years. We'll have 200 people at the Canadian Consulate next month, well, March. I do it once a year, deliberately. It's my brand. People know it, and in New York, from what was like, I just want to make money, they have an expression in Wall Street called the edge. I must want the edge. Everybody has the edge. Well, now it's the environmental edge. Now it's a way to make money doing the right thing. Those are the terms I invented, green trading, green finance, almost 25 years ago, deliberately, because I want the outcome. That's what I'm concerned about, the outcome. How do you make the world a better place? You can't just say that. You got to do the work. And I've done the work. That's the difference. You just can't write a paper about it. You got to go do it. So I've just, you know, I just decided the nicest thing that's happened to me is one of my students from my class at Columbia is now the CEO and founder of that wireless recharging company. (laughs) Another of my students thanked me almost 20 years ago to get her started on environmental finance. And she's on the board of directors of Vera. So they, I, one of them's at the World Bank running a clean fund. Another one's at ESG manager at a big fund in New York. So I, I'm kind of pleased that I've had the opportunity to mentor the young people in mass, many more than you realize. But the reason is we have to make the transformation together. We have to build the community. And it's a global community. And it's not going to COP. I don't go to COP. It's not, not 70,000 people doing press release. I'm talking about the hard work. My dad had an expression. It's called heavy lifting. This is the heaviest lift we've ever seen, climate change. This is hard. Believe me, if it was easy, everybody would do it. But some of us want to do it. And and look, I I tried to message during COVID that there's a correlation of infectious disease and climate change. Nobody wanted to hear that. And I work with Harvard Medical School Swiss re at Columbia University on that almost 23 years ago. So there's things you don't even think about. Oh, a virus couldn't be impacted by climate. Of course it can. insect born, water-borne, but nobody wanted to hear that story. So I've done a lot of things people don't want to hear about. But, but, but uh, I just have one trait. I am extremely stubborn, and I, uh, my wife has an expression, don't quit before the miracle. So I just don't quit. I don't quit. I'm still here. I'm still standing. And from you know, people come up to me, you know. My my wife works for Apple Computer and we're doing green stuff. You you stick out like a sore thumb on Wall Street. Not anymore. Not anymore. They had to change. They couldn't see the change because they had to make money doing the change. That's okay. But they made the change. This is huge. This is the biggest business opportunity we've ever seen. Talking about decarbonization, I'm talking about carbon markets, I'm talking about innovative clean technology, I'm talking about transitioning energy, food, and water. This is huge. It's never happened before. The good news is the whole world can do this. Look, I was eating organic food in Pittsburgh in 1970 at a food co-op. How many years ago was that? (laughs) People... you're a student you're eating organic food well now it's very mainstream Uh, what i've learned is change change takes time
0: yeah time's too long yeah that's true i actually went to a vegan restaurant in seattle and i think uh, it was a buffet and it was one of the best food i ever had Um, the things are changing so much although i eat uh, non-vegetarian food white meat you know chicken or fish very rarely red, red meat but we come to the last question, I think we had a very detailed discussion, very informative, and it was a very classic discussion. I think there's so many points covered. It would be such an interesting discussion for anybody who wants to know what are the latest, you know, what are the latest technology, what is happening in the green finance space. So I really want to thank you for that. So the last and of course, the final question is always the aha question. You know, whatever experience you want to share, you could share one experience or uh, many experiences here that, you know, brings uh, happy thoughts.
1: Well, the experience very simply is building community. That's what I'm up to. So I'll just give you an example. Some friends from the hedge fund community came to me and says, well, how about if we do a virtual cap intro event with your conference net? We haven't announced this yet. We're going to announce it soon. I said, okay, because you got to marry investors to technology people. So you know, my game, very simply, is there was no community. So how do you build the community? The good news is there is an amazing sustainable community now. I mean, I remember something called the Carbonauts. There are climate tech cocktails. There are people looking at sustainable fashion. What's happened is this thing has exploded in every direction and every manifestation of every discipline of every business in the world. It's there. That's what's changed. And it's taken 50 years. Don't forget, it's Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970 in Pittsburgh with my solar power t-shirt. Look, that's 54 years ago I think we are in the most best of times to quote Dickens because now's the time for innovation and creativity and it's coming from all age groups but I I bank on the young people so the young people are the army and the older people are the commanders that's we so we gotta they it's fine this is We've never had this opportunity. And by the way, it never had any of these names. It wasn't called green. It wasn't called sustainability. It wasn't called anything. Anything. It had no name. That's true. That's true.
0: Even I, when I see young people, I, I feel the same thing, you know, that I should mentor them or, you know, the other sort of energy, which is going to take forward. Like you said, you know, the older kinds, they are more of commanders or, you know, how they're going to be different. Give me an
1: example. Tomorrow, I'm meeting with somebody from the Maldives. I'm meeting with somebody from Australia. I'm meeting with somebody from two people from India. That's a typical day in my life. Of course, I live in New York City with 200 nationalities. Everybody's here, but that's the world I live in. They're all different cultures, all different peoples, but they're all interested in the same thing.
0: The greatest city in the world, New York. I mean, that's a city to be city, which is of, of different level, a uh, fantastic experience. Living in that city and, you know, living, being in that place itself, is so phenomenal that uh, uh, Norris New York has also become one of the startup hubs. Like you said, I think you mentioned that there are thousands, 4,000 maybe venture capital, how many, but it's just become another Silicon Valley sort of... Uh, it's uh, become it's, a climate tech
1: city. That's that. what's happened here. It's, re- it's just starting to get branded as that, but a lot of People you don't know have done a lot of hard work to make this happen
0: thanks a lot. you could add if, if if I missed out something, but I think we had a very very detailed, very informative you know discussion. I really want to thank you you know you took time we have such a busy schedule, but really glad we had this uh, conversation if you want to add any message or you want to you know talk about anything which I could have missed out, you're welcome to do so
1: oh this, this is no but thank you very much for inviting me. this is the time for sustainability. that's the key. that's the punchline.
0: Okay thanks a lot I Thank you very much keep in touch bye bye